Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her stunning and conceptually adventurous new book, Emotions and Modernity in Colonial India, From Balance to Fervor, Margaret Pernal examines the varied and hugely consequential expressions of and normative investments in emotions in modern South Asian Muslim thought. By considering a wide array of sources including male and female reformist literature, poetry, newspapers, journals, sermons, psychology books and much more, Pranav explores the question of how the career of Islam in colonial India saw a paradigmatic shift from emphasis on balance or adal to fervor and ebullience or josh. The intensification rather than the retreat of emotion represents a major feature of South Asian Muslim scholarly thought and culture in late 19th and early 20th century, Pernau convincingly demonstrates. Through the specific case study of modern South Asian Islam, she also presents and argues for novel conceptualizations of modernity as a lived and analytical category, marked not just by the disciplining of the body and emotions, but one infused with emotional politics, passions and communities. This riveting read will fascinate and interest not only Islam and South Asia specialists, but anyone interested in the interaction of modernity, emotion, religion, and politics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Margaret Pernau. Hello, Margaret. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm very happy that this could finally happen. And thank you so much for having me here. Uh, Thank you so much, Margaret. As I was saying before we started recording, this really is such an incredible book, uh, which... um, there's so many different things, uh, and I really am l- looking forward to talking about this book with you. And it's conceptually, it's uh, really novel and interesting in the study of Islam in South Asia. It has a remarkable textual analysis of uh, a wide array of sources. Uh, so, uh, really looking forward to this conversation. But we have a tradition on our uh, network, Margaret, that our first question before we get to the book is biographical. Uh, and I would ask you a two part question. One, uh, could you share a bit with our listeners? Um, your journey, how you became a scholar of South Asia, South Asian Islam, etc., a historian, uh, sort of the personal journey of how you became a scholar. And then uh, second part, uh, what got you to write this particular book? Okay. Uh, well, as a, as a historian, of course, I would always be looking for causalities uh, way back in time. And if I really go back in time, I would say that My engagement with South Asia started at the age of five when my parents and I moved to Delhi and stayed there for three years. And my father at that time was working at the Asian Institute for Educational Planning. And this institute had a very close link to to the Jamamilia. And he was he was such good friends with a couple of the professors at Jamamilia. So People like uh, like Zayadin or even like Zakir Hussein, in a way, were household names for me long before I knew anything about Indian history. And then I was quite quite surprised when I started reading their texts that they actually existed outside of our home, and that they were not just not just friends of my father, but that they were actually really really important people. So if you want to trace the causality back, you could trace it back to then. Or you could say that it was by chance because I had started studying European history and I knew definitely that I didn't want to to remain with European history. So I was looking for something a little bit more exciting. And then we had one of the professors from the South Asian Institute in Heidelberg who came to give a couple of lectures. And then I discovered that I discovered the South Asia Institute that I knew nothing about it before. And I discovered what a wonderful place to study it was. 
and that some of the some of the professors there were actually friends of my had been friends of my parents back in Delhi. And I started studying there, and that was the beginning, and I never went back on that. Great. And this uh, second part, how, what uh, got you to write this particular book? How you got to this? Uh, well, I, was, I had started working on the history of emotions back in 2008. And in the beginning, it was just the idea to put together some of the, some of the talks that I had done at different occasions, Madison and other, other places. And then I started thinking about what held these different interventions together. And then I discovered that that really had a lot to do with how we think about modernity and how we, how we can engage the history of emotions to think about modernity in a different way. And that really got me thinking because I think one of the greatest danger for the history of emotions is that it's becoming a nice and cozy subject where people feel good about it, but which is so cozy that it does not really matter any longer. And what I've been trying from the beginning is to show that on the one hand, the history of emotion is not a counter project to any form of political history, that power is as important for history of emotion as it is for political or economic history, and that the history of emotion is not a side subject, but that it leads us to engage with some of the most important questions that have, that have bothered historians for the, for the last generation or two. So the questions are not really new, but the way of addressing them and engaging with them hopefully is new and leads to new results. So, so let's, let's uh, actually uh, think a bit about the larger theme of this book to do with emotions. Um, uh, and one of the key ideas that we see in this book is that uh, it, you make the argument that you know, oftentimes we look at modernity as a time uh, where emotions uh, are, uh, you know, um, are disciplined or they retreat. Uh, but here you actually make an argument and show very convincingly how the intensification of emotions takes place in a certain context of modern South Asian Islam. But could you say a bit more uh, uh, and explain a bit more to our listeners um, in terms of the relationship between emotion and how they're reflected in these texts and discourses and figures, etc. How would you describe the larger uh, sort of uh, conceptual intervention when it comes to the category of emotions that you see yourself making uh, in this book? Okay. I think an important intervention would be, I mean, we've been, we've been provincializing everything in the last couple of years. So you could call it a provincializing of the concept of emotions as well. The problem is that, that the history of emotion is still a fairly new discipline within history. And it has started out from as many things from a European-American background. And that already leads us to assume a certain concept of emotions as an analytical category, where emotions are inside of people. So emotions is something which belongs to the inner domain, and it is something that people are very or subjects are very keen on observing and regulating constantly. And this then in a second step would lead to, a, to an engagement with emotions where we look for self-descriptions, where we look for diaries, where we look for collections of letters, which as you know, probably better than I do, are quite hard to come about in South Asia. And that then led me to engage with the concept of emotion in Urdu and in the Indo-Persianate tradition to see whether this is at all, whether the concept that we are using as an analytical concept resonates at all with 
the actor's concept that we find in the sources. And the actor's concept, I would say, is much more emotions as an in-between people, as emotions as within people. It is an emo- It is a concept of emotion which is more related to moral categories in the beginning than to the body. And that then gets transformed in the in the second half second half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And this transformation is one of the key aspects what the book is about. In the first uh, sort of substantive chapter of the book, you have a very interesting analysis of uh, the aftermath of the or the events of the 1857 rebellion, etc. And this is one of the few places in the text where you sort of juxtapose uh, Indian Muslim responses and also British sort of responses and uh, sort of valorization of particular forms of uh, gruesome violence on the part of colonial officers. And you show an interesting kind of convergence in terms of the kinds of emotions that that we saw on display in the kind of uh, sort of remembrances and uh, how this event was uh, uh, was later uh, uh, imagined and uh, talked about. Um, could you say a bit about uh, what are some of the convergences and some of the ways in which British and Indian Muslim responses and emotions um, uh, in that particular moment of the 1857 rebellion, how they converged? Maybe what was different? Yeah, the assumption with which we usually would start in looking at emotions at the transition from a pre-modern to a modern time, if we want to use these categories at all, would be that the more modern a group of persons is, the more they have learned to discipline their emotions And that certainly would be true for a group like an army. And that is what is so interesting about the British reactions to the rebellion of 1857, that they do not correspond to these assumptions at all. So it is not an army which functions like a machine. It is not an army which asks the soldiers to discipline their emotions, but it is an army which thrives on an excess of emotions. So emotions of masculinity, emotions of outrage, emotions of revenge are really coming to the forefront in the British army, much more than we find them in any of the documents of the Indian side. So if the discipline of emotions is what makes modernity, then we have a problem here. Then we would have to say that the British and that the British army corresponded much more to a pre-modern way of dealing with emotions than to a modern way. This can also be shown if you recall the way that Foucault talks about punishments as the excess of violence inscribed to the body of the offender. That is exactly what the British did at that moment. So it was not an attempt to discipline the rebellious soldiers. It was not an attempt to discipline their own soldiers. It was trying to push emotions to a point of excess and to push the vengeance and the punishment equally to this point of excess and to inscribe it in the body of the offender. Now, let's talk a bit about the another major thread and theme of the book, an argument of the book, which is basically uh, the second part of your title, From Balance to Fervor, or what throughout the book you show this uh, sort of shift from the idea of adal or balance uh, to uh, josh or fervor, ebulence, etc. I was wondering, Margaret, if you could speak to that theme. Uh, I mean, you, um, you spend a lot of time in the next chapter in terms of showing the shifts from um, earlier Aristotelian notions of emotions to sort of modern uh, imaginaries that came about in such media like journalism, etc. 
I was wondering, uh, maybe we can think a bit about this shift and this this uh, this argument through the career of a scholar who who um, gets a lot of time in your in your text, uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan, who's very well known, but I think you've done some very new and interesting work on him in this book, um, and his, of course, uh, uh, journals, Tahzibul uh, Akhlaq, etc. Taking him as an example, um, uh, could you perhaps uh, elaborate for the listener? this part of your argument uh, from balance to fervor, or you could, of course, talk beyond him also. But I was wondering, maybe I thought that specificity might be useful in terms of trying to capture some key parts of that argument. What what do you mean by that, from balance to fervor? And how the, is that reflected in scholars like Syed Ahmed Khan or other yeah. uh, thinkers that you talk about? Yeah, I think Syed Ahmed Khan is a, is a very good example, and I'm glad that you brought him up. Because if we usually think about Ali, the Aligar movement, we think about it as an, a movement which subscribed to rationalism. If we use the category of enlightenment in the Indo-Muslim context, it is usually Syed Ahmed Khan and the Aligar movement which are mentioned. And that is not wrong. There is a strong underlining of rationality in the work of Syed Ahmed Khan. There is a there is an emphasis on rational sciences. There is an emphasis on sciences to court. But at the end, if we if we look at the at the pictures of Syed Ahmed Khan or at the at the early photo- photographs which show him with with his collaborators we always see this very stern, very strict-looking, unsmiling faces, and you would think that they that nothing would be further away from them than any excess of emotions. And that is exactly what what struck me so much when reading the the art the speeches and the articles in Tehzibul Akhlaq, the extent to which Syed Ahmed Khan not only uses an emotional language, but also calls for strong emotions in his listeners and readers, to the extent that he that he poses the existence, the, the ability of the readers, and especially of the young man among the readers to feel strongly for the fate of the calm, of the community, as the very condition on which the survival of the calm hinges. So there's one, one quote I really love about, love in one, in one of the articles, which is his lament that in former times, Muslims were able to feel strongly and now they only sigh. So they no longer have hamdardi, they no longer have compassion on the, on the suffering of the calm, on the suffering of the members of the calm. But the only thing they can do is to have a, a weak, uh, a weak, uh, um, a weak excla- exclaimer. And he says, this is because the blood of our young man, which used to be red, has turned white. So it is the very fact that they are now, that on a bodily level, they are no longer able to produce heat, to produce this masculinity, which then is shown in strong emotions. And I found that extremely interesting for a person like Syed Ahmed Khan, because on the one hand, you have a strong identification in his values still with with the Indo-Persian cultures. So he was brought up on, on a reading diet of Akhlaq literature on the classical texts of morality in the Aristotelian tradition. But this changes, and it changes in the in the late sixties and early seventies, and partly it is because he needs the emotions to 
mobilize people to to donate money for the oligarch movement, but I think it goes much further than that. It is it is the 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 impression that time is running out, so there is only a very small window in which the community can still be saved, and it is this impression that now is the time. So now is the window of opportunity, and if we miss this occasion, then things will be decided for many generations to come. And this gives this tremendous urgency to his call to say that if you are not doing the right thing now, if you are not loving the calm, if you're not loving the Vatan the way that Majnun loved his Leila, so these very strong, very, very boundless feelings that he evokes. So it is it is passion to the to the extent that you sacrifice not only everything that you have, but you are ready to sacrifice your very reason, your your rationality. This, these are the emotions which are required in this very moment. And if these, if his listeners are not willing to to give in to, and to produce these strong passions, then everything will be lost and there will be utter shame and utter despondency for many generations to come. So it is this fear of zilat, it is this fear of, of decline, of utter humiliation that, that is really central in, in this moment. Now, another distinctive aspect of this book is that it, it not only looks at male actors and, and, and their sort of writings, etc., but you have, I think, one of the most fascinating chapters in this book uh, which has uh, these very powerful female actors, the Begums of uh, Bhopal. Um, and what I really liked about that chapter was that um, you showed how they were part of the same kind of um, a, a Muslim reformist milieu and a certain kind of a project which had similarities to their male counterparts, but also had some interesting distinctions. Um, the question I wanted to ask you, Margaret, it's such a rich chapter, there's so many things we can talk about uh, in terms of the chapter was, but one of the things that I found most interesting, and I thought might be interesting for our listeners to hear your um, views on it was the generational shifts that you show of how 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 this uh, the 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 the, uh, the expenditure of emotions the kind of uh, the, the the educational uh, projects of these three figures the, the begums of uh, bhopal how they shifted from generation to generation so could you say a bit for, uh, to our listeners a who were these figures for those who may not be familiar who were the begum uh, begums of bhopal and how did their writings, their emphasis on education and emotions shift from uh, generation to generation. Yeah. So for those who are perhaps not so familiar with with uh, British rule over India, you had two different ways of ruling. The British had two different ways of ruling the country. The one was the British Indian territory where they had a system of direct rule and the other were some 500-odd princely states, which were ruled by so-called native princes, uh, and where the, the bigger states had a so-called resident at their capital who supervised more or less the, the prince or the, the Indian ruler. And the Begums of Bhopal were one of the largest states, and it was the only state which throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th century was ruled by women, by Muslim women. So it does not really correspond to some of the prejudices we find about the, about the suppressed uh, Muslim female. So they were extreme. All of them obviously were married but their husbands did not have a strong position in the in the princely state. It was really the women who ruled on their own. So if we start <coughs> with Shah Jahan Begum, who ruled from who ruled in the second half of the 19th century, I think up to the up to the turn of the of the century. Uh, and she wrote a very interesting book 
corresponding in a way to what Syed Ahmed Khan did for a male audience, where he spoke about the Hazibulahlak, the polishing of the manners or the polishing of morality. And she called her book Tehzibunisvan, what Tarbiat Ulinsan, so the the civilization of women and the education of mankind. And this was a book which is really at the at the point of change. On the one hand, emo- as far as the emotions are concerned and the desire to balance emotions, it is still very much within the Aristotelian tradition. But on the other hand, it is a book which follows the life of a Muslim lady from the birth to death and gives instruction for her how to behave in every single situation. And what distinguishes this book from something like the better known Behishti Zevar of Ashraf Ali Tanvi, which is a male education of women, is that her main interest is, of course, on the one hand, to help women to be pious Muslims. But pious Muslims also means that they should be able to handle their affairs without the intervention of non-related male. So it is necessary for women to be, in order to be pious, to be able to solve many of the problems herself. So she should know how to deal with issues of health. She should know how to manage a large household, uh, how to deal with the finances, how to deal, of course, with servants and how to be independent of advice that men might give her, on the one hand, to reduce the interaction with unrelated male, but also not to be cheated by men and to be able to control them and not just to follow any kind of advice. So the emotions that she is depicting are still the balanced emotion of the Aristotelian tradition, which means avoid any form of excess. So it is not the opposition between good emotions and bad emotions. Every emotion can be both good or or virtuous or bad and vicious, depending on the degree. Anything which is balanced, which keeps a medium between two forms of excess, is good and virtuous. And as soon as excess starts, it becomes a lack of virtue. So from this, this would be the the the, the first the begum of the 19th century. Then her daughter also wrote a, a treatise on the education of children, and. Here we already so so she reigned in the in the first quarter of the 20th century. And here we already see how the language of emotions creeps in. So emotions become something, especially in the context of the family and in the context of educating children, which gains a large, a very important value. So it is not enough to just care for the children and see that they have everything they need. Children also need to be loved. Not that they were not loved before, so let's not fall into the into the Ariestre uh, trap where love starts only in the 19th century. So it is a different form of loving children, but for the second Begum, it becomes important that affection and love to the children are shown and that the whole the whole atmosphere of the house is of a loving family and interestingly her daughter-in-law who was married at a very young age to the to the successor to the throne and had three children before she was 18 i think continues, on the one hand, the the family tradition of writing about the 
uh, about female virtue and about the education of children and also pushes this agenda of emotionalization. And as far as I as I've been able to find out until now, but of course there is much more to read, is one of the few texts where we find a young mother reflecting on the costs of modern education, on the one hand for the children who are sent off to a boarding school at a very very early age, but also what it means for a young mother to give up the influence on her children, no longer to be able to see them every day, no longer to be able to care for them if they're ill, and to sacrifice her emo- to have to sacrifice her emotions in order that the children can get a good education and can go on in life. One of the other really interesting uh, and useful things in this uh, book is that. Um, uh, the range of actors that you bring into conversation. So the next chapter I want to talk a bit about has to do with the media of uh, sermons and uh, the career of uh, Ashraf Ali Thanvi, the famous scholar of the Deoband School. Um, and throughout the book, you actually have shown that, you know, oftentimes this kind of uh, uh, separation that we assume between the modernist actors, the so-called modernist actors, like Sayyid Ahmad Khan, and these traditionalist actors like Ashraf Ali Thanvi, uh, that perhaps we have... Uh, uh, the bifurcation is perhaps a bit too far stretched sometimes, and you show some very interesting parallels between these actors. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you about this chapter is twofold. One is, um, how does the medium of the sermon um, uh, relate to this larger theme of emotions? What is distinctive about this particular medium? So I want to spend, you to perhaps say a little bit about uh, the sermon as a sort of site of uh, of uh, 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 thinking about the category of emotions. And the other thing that I found really interesting about this chapter that I wanted to focus on uh, with this question is the kind of gendered discourse of Ashraf Ali Thanvi. And he shows in very remarkable ways how he sort of shifted his discourse, his emphasis on different emotions, depending on whether his audiences were female or male, etc. Uh, so I was wondering if you could perhaps also talk a bit about that gendered uh, aspect of uh, of Ashraf Ali Thanvi's uh, sermons. Yeah. Yeah, so the sermon is one of the occasions to talk about emotions in a sustained way. So I think it would be the the two main occasions would be either in in the journals, so that would be speeches or articles written specifically for the for the journal, which often refer back to the tradition of the sermons. So for many of the authors, being a journalist and writing in a journal is a form of, well, we might almost call it secularized sermon. So the, the responsibility for talking about morality and about virtue, which is traditionally given in the sermon, is passed on to journalists in the course of the the last decades of the 19th century without the sermons, of course, losing importance. Uh, Ashraf Alitanvi was very conscious of the power of his sermons, both in delivering the sermon. His sermons have, have been published during his lifetime and they have been republished now, I think, in thir- 37 volumes. So for many years, he really gave sermons every single week and very often several sermons a week. And he judged them to be so important that he made it a point that his disciples always recorded always uh, took notes of the sermon, wrote these notes up, and he rechecked the notes afterwards before they were published. So the sermons were meant for publication at the moment that he was delivering them already. The way that he engages with the audience, he, in the, in the collection of his sermons, he always gives the circumstances of a particular Sermons. So we know exactly who the audience or 
we at least have an idea who the audience were. We know in which kind of a building he gave the sermon. We usually know how many people attended. And we know whether women were ex included or not, or if it was a sermon that he gave especially for ladies. He was a master in gearing his sermons towards the audience that he was speaking to. That might be the difference between speaking to his disciples or speaking to a very large crowd. So he, sometimes he addressed crowds in the 10,000s. Sometimes, he, especially if he spoke at his, at his own, uh, own khanka in Tanabavan, it was an audience of perhaps 25 or 30 people. So this difference is always very important. And then the gendered difference is something that he is very conscious about. And he likes to make different arguments, not only which kind of emotions are appropriate for women or for men, but he would also make speak about male emotions differently if, if he had an all-male audience or if he was talking to women. A case in point would be his talking about anger. So anger and is in the in the traditional Aristotelian way, which we find we still find traces in Tanavi's work in Anger is in itself not a negative emotion. So anger might be, might be an emotion which is in balance. What is negative would be either a complete lack of anger, so that would be cowardice, or it would be an excess of anger which is no longer controlled. But to have a strong emotion of anger would underlie underline the masculinity of a man. So a man is supposed to be of a hot temperament if he has if he has his masculinity intact. And hotness is always associated with anger and vice versa. So a real man has to have a certain amount and a certain capacity for anger if he wants to be respected and if he wants to lead an active life. You know much, you certainly could tell us much more about it than I know about the, the uh, importance of anger among certain Sufi orders. So the, the possibility of anger also to burn away sins, the, topic of the angry Sufi who is, ang who is angry for the sake of God and anger becoming one of the, one of the possibilities to, to enact God's will on, in the world. So these hot, this, this possibility of having a hot anger is very much linked to masculinity. And therefore, it is not accessible this virtuous anger is not accessible to women. If women are angry, it is a cold anger. And cold anger can never, in Tanavi's worldview, can never be honorable. So it is not a reflection that women are not able to express their anger, therefore they have to cool it down and, and find other ways of expressing their discontent. It is female anger is cold and therefore a bad thing. So there is no way for women to give into anger at all. And we find this apparent contradiction that on the one hand, virtue is based on the control of emotions, is based on not being overwhelmed by emotions, but submitting them to to the rationality and submitting them to the will, which would be a very male quality in the sermons. But on the other hand, men are much more allowed than women are 
to give in to their passions, and they're even asked to have these strong emotions. So we have this contradiction that a woman would never be permitted to to voice her emotions to the same extent as a man would be, but the man gets the credit for being able to control his emotions, whereas she is unable to do so. The next chapter talks about a very interesting figure, um, Abdul Majid Daryabadi, and the theme of uh, psychology. And uh, uh, you talk about the translation of different categories when it comes to the field of psychology as it developed in Urdu. And then you talk very interesting ways about uh, uh, the kinds of emotions that we see articulated in uh, Daryabadi's text on um, leadership and, and psychology. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with this figure, Margaret, so if you could perhaps Briefly introduce uh, uh, who is uh, Abdul Majid Daryabadi and uh, if you could also introduce this text uh, uh, to us, uh, how does psychology and these questions of leadership enter into uh, his uh, imagination, his articulation of uh, uh, emotions? Sure. So if today Abdul Majid Daryabadi is still known, it would be first and foremost as as a theologian, it would be someone who has a rather conservative take on Islamic reformism, uh, being close to first to Abdul Abdul Bari Farangi Mahali and then afterwards to Tanavi. So moving from the from the Lucknow tradition of Sufism to Deoband. What is much less known is the biography before he became a conservative theologian. He started out in quite an influential family, one of the Ashrafs of Daryabad, with connections to Lucknow. He had a, an English medium education in, in uh, Lucknow, I think it was Canning College, I'm not not quite sure. I, th- I'm, I think it was it was Canning College, um, up to his BA, and he was an avid reader of everything that he could find in Urdu or in English. His English was excellent, so he could he could perfectly access any any book in in English, and he also wrote in English from a very early age onward, he came into contact with the rationalist philosophy in England, and he engaged with these texts to the extent that he started questioning his own faith. He never completely renounced Islam because he still considered himself as belonging to the Muslim community, but he stopped being a believer, not least because of his engagement with texts of philosophy, of psychology, of the intertwining between body science and the sciences of the mind. He started writing a number of of texts in English and in Urdu on on psychology and the psychology of leadership. And then in the years immediately before the First World War, slowly moved back to recovering his faith. So first he engaged with Buddhism, then Buddhism brought him to theosophy. And from theosophy, he found his way to Sufism and then quite quickly he he then engaged with Abdul Bari and and Tanavi and then then became became a rather conservative Muslim author to the extent that he renounced most of his many of his earlier texts, not the not his main book on psychology, but other texts um which he found were too threatening to to the faith of the Muslims, so he he took his distance from from them. What is interesting about his take on psychology, if we compare it to what is happening at the same time in Bengal, in Bengal we have the engagement 
with Freudian psychology very early and we have practitioners of mental health taking the lead. For Darya Badi, he is not interested in questions of mental health at all. He never, he never had an aim to practice psychology. What he was interested in was, on the one hand, crowd psychology. So he engages with figures like Le Bon. And on the other hand, the, the psychology of leadership and the psychology of motivation. So you can see a very close match between on the one, with what he writes on the one hand on psychology, on psychology of the masses, on psychology of political mobilization, on the role of strong emotions for political mobilization, and his own engagement in the national movement and in the Khilafat movement. So he was very close to Muhammad Ali. And he helped he was he was one of his of his assistants in the in the organization of the Khilafat movement. What is important for his take on, on psychology is the complete break with the Aristotelian tradition. And the break in that case means that emotions are no longer linked to virtue or vices or any questions of morality at all. And emotions are delinked from human will. And his, his, the way that he gives importance to the emotions is very much in a Le Bonian tradition, saying that it is through emotions that nature guides humankind. And in order, so the closer the emotions are to a natural, to a natural phenomenon, the closer, the less they have been educated, the more nature is able to guide a community along a certain along the path to progress and to survival. So it's really the opposite of what even someone like Syed Ahmed Khan was still hoping for. So to have a role of the will to go for certain emotions, even if, if Syed Ahmed Khan asks for developing compassions, asks for a strong role of the passions asked for young men to give in to their red-bloodedness. It was always a moral question. It was a question that emotions can be brought about, even strong emotions can be brought about by the power of the will. For Darya Badi, it moves completely into the body. So emotions are a phenomenon of the body and not of the will. And they are linked to not to individual education and not to individual willpower, but it is the emotions of the community which matter, and it is the role that emotions play in the survival of a community. I want to next uh, turn to uh, the chapter on. Uh, the events in Kanpur in 1913, the, the riots uh, around the mosque in Kanpur. And you mentioned that you sort of the book begins in uh, North India, in Uttar Pradesh, with the events of 1857, and then sort of uh, ends also uh, around this, um, this episode in Kanpur. Uh, perhaps I will have you explain to our listeners briefly what happened in Kanpur in 1913. Uh, and this is, of course, an episode quite familiar to uh, students of South Asia, but perhaps if you could just uh, briefly ex explain for those who might not be familiar. But the thing that I found really interesting and fascinating about this chapter, which I saw as one of the major arguments of this chapter, was ways in which uh, this category of emotion can be tied to the formation of a political community and the ways in which uh, the intensification of certain emotions, in this case around one event, eventually makes the space and makes possible the consolidation of a political community, which then 
makes the space for movements like the Khilafat movement a few years later, the non-cooperation movement, etc. So uh, I was wondering if you could explain this argument a bit, uh, the relationship between political formations and emotions uh, through this example of Kanpur. Sure. So the events of Kanpur are linked to the mobilization of the Muslim community in the years immediately before the First World War. So what happened was that the municipal committee in Kanpur decided on the on the the renovation of the old city of Kanpur, the decongestion of the very closely built old city by building one road through the through one of the the most tightly built areas and the building of this the construction of this road very early on it was clear that it would probably touch one temple that could could still be averted and it would touch the washing house of the of the mosque of the Majli Bazaar. So the debates first were quite quite uh, amicable between the between the caretakers of the mosque. The municipality offered um, to to pay for the rebuild of the destroyed. What if the washing house were to be destroyed? it would be rebuilt in the immediate vicinity and they would take care of the costs. So it seemed as if everything would, would be solved without, without major problems. But then um, the issue spread. It was taken up by the newspapers and it was it became more and more contested and the contestation was mainly whether the British had the right to interfere in the definition what belonged to a mosque or not. Because if the washing house was an integral part of the mosque, then according to the Sharia, it could never be um, this. It, it was the property of God and a government does not have the right to take away the property of God. So it was who defines the Sharia. It was a question of how much power would the municipal corporations have after the reform of 1909. So quite a number of different different agendas got mixed into that. And the, the, um, the discussion started to heat up and to become in North Indian uh, issue. What happened in that moment was one of the most interesting cases of translation and and perhaps mistranslation that I came across in the in the research on the book. So James Meston, the, the Lieutenant Governor of the United Provinces, wanted to cool down the tempers and said that there was the whole issue had blown out of proportion. It was, as always, outside agitators who were who were um, who were heating up the debate. And what he said was in Kanpur itself there is no excitement. And in the colonial vocabulary, excitement of course is a very negative emotion. So excitement is what what rebel roses rouses have. Excitement is a popular feeling you can't trust too much. So excitement is he thought he was paying a compliment to the Kanpur people by saying there was no excitement in Kanpur itself. This intervention of Meston the very next day was translated in the Urdu newspapers and they translated excitement as Josh. And Josh, at that point in the Urdu vocabulary, is an extremely positive emotion. So Josh is the fervor, is the passions, is the devotions, is the devotion to, to a good cause. 
So in the translation, what Meston had said is, the people of Kanpur have no Josh. If you read that on the background of both what we just talked about with relation to Syed Ahmed Khan, but also with relation to someone like Darya Badi, where Josh is really what is going to save the community. So Josh stands for the strong emotions, stands for the masculinity, stands for for the for the inner fire, stands for the willingness to sacrifice. So if the British now say there is no Josh in Kanpur, he couldn't have devised a better insult. And that is the moment when the whole agitation really turns, turns um, ex- not, not excessive, uh, turns, turns, jo- turns Joshi. So, the, so the, the aim of the agitation now, of course, on the one hand, remained to save the mosque, but what becomes as important as saving the mosque is to show that they had Josh. And you find extremely interesting interventions in the newspapers, but also in the sermons given in Kanpur, to say that if we could tear our breast open and show our heart to the lieutenant governor, we would be able to show how much Josh we have. So it is not only having Josh, but it is also the importance of being able to show that, to show it to the community, but also to show it to the state. So it is, you have to have this passion and the passion has to become visible. And that then is what what led the events in Kanpur. So the events themselves was that in 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 uh, 1913 there was a, one of the big demonstrations in favor of saving the mosque. And at the end of this gathering, um, some people went towards the mosque. The washing house had been torn down already. And it is not very clear whether they wanted to rebuild it with the stones, which were still there, or whether they started throwing the stones at the police. But the police shot and a number of people were killed. And that really put fire to the oil all over North India and became a major issue in all of the Urdu-speaking newspapers. So, so as a final substantive, substantive question, question Margaret, Margaret, I wanted, I wanted to, take to take a step, step back. back. Uh, uh, the book has a, a remarkable conclusion uh, in which, uh, in tremendous detail, you think about how your book has contributed to a reconceptualization of modernity and you engage uh, uh, plentifully with Kosalek and other sort of uh, 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 ways in which modernity has been engaged. Um, so I'll ask you a sort of broad question, um, and you can take it where you want to take it. But um, yeah, the broad question I want to ask you is precisely that: uh, How are you proposing, with the help of this book, and you know, coming back to this theme of provincializing emotions, etc., how are you um, proposing a reconceptualization of uh, uh, the category of uh, of modernity uh, uh, through this book? The narrative we had on modernity so far, and that is really a narrative which goes back to, well, probably the Enlightenment, but certainly the 19th century, was that modernity has something to do with the discipline of emotions. It has something to do, on the one hand, with being able to control excessive emotions and also with internalizing these, this control. So it is no longer the state which forces you to not have excessive emotions and enact them, but it becomes internalized and every subject has to, has to take care of that themselves. So we have the classical texts following that up from Marx, where the factory is the great disciplining power to Weber, Max Weber, where this role is more taken over by the bureaucracy. We have the, the civilization 
the, the process of civilization by Norbert Elias, where it is the court which has an influence, so the process of civilization starts earlier. And of course, we have Foucault and all his work on disciplining, where it is the prison house and the madhouse, which are the which are the central institutions for changing the emotion regime for everyone. And I'm certainly, and a whole, whole libraries have been written following these, these impulses, and I'm certainly not going to deny the value that they have added to our knowledge about history and also to our knowledge about emotions. What I wanted to bring out is that this is not the entire story. So if we look at the 19th and 20th century, we have both the importance of nationalism, which certainly is not a field in any way devoid of emotions, and also the the new importance of religion, especially for South Asia, but I think you can also see that in other parts of the world. It is not a South Asia-specific take on modernity that I'm suggesting here. So it is, it is nationalism, it is religion, it is the mass public, so people coming out, people participating in politics, in a much larger way than they ever did before and coming together in large crowds, influencing politics from the street and in a more benign way, also the emotionalization of family relations, the emotionalization of friendship, but also of spousal love and of education. All of this is not new. We've known it for Europe. We've certainly known, known it for a long time for South Asia. And there are many books talking about emotions without expressively classifying themselves as a history of emotions. So I'm not claiming that I'm, that I'm the first one to have discovered emotions in, in South Asia, by far not. But what I find interesting is that this knowledge does not make it into the theories of modernity. So we have a narrative of modernity on the one hand, which is the narrative of self-control and of discipline. And we have a knowledge that this is not all. So in the beginning, I thought I would just write write an adding to, well, there is more to that, more to modernity than just discipline. Please also pay attention to the emotions. And the more I went into the subject, the more I wanted to bring out that discipline and emotions are not as distinct as we sometimes want them to be or believe them to be. It is not only excessive emotions which have this emotional quality. It is also the disciplining process itself. So if you look at descriptions, perhaps even at advertisements for watches in the late 19th century, you see that the whole process of punctuality, which is a form of discipline, obviously, so punctuality and uh, thriftiness are always mentioned as the Victorian values of which discipline excess in, in daily life. But being a person with a watch is a highly emotional subject, is a highly emotional topic at that time. So being able to be this disciplined person in turn, has an emotional quality to it. Sometimes I, I think it's just once you start looking for emotions that they pop up everywhere and not, as a, not necessarily as a separate category, but as a category which is deeply entangled with all the other categories that we are thinking about. 
as we come to the end of our time, Margaret, uh, uh, could you share with our listeners a bit uh, what uh, you're working on now? What's the next project you're uh, thinking of doing? Uh, at the moment, I'm writing a very short book on emotions and temporality, uh, trying to to bring these two research fields together to see what are the emotions which are linked to different imaginations of time and how time, on the other hand, and thinking about time creates an atmosphere in which certain emotions are possible rather than other emotions. So it's basically on the 19th and the 20th century, I'm moving a bit out of, I'm still focusing on North India, but I'm also trying to bring in a little bit of Iran, the Ottoman Empire, and the Arab world. Emotions and Modernity in Colonial India by uh, From Balance to Fervor by Professor Margaret Pernau, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, Margaret, for this incredible book that uh, I am sure and I hope will spark a lot of conversations in multiple fields. Uh, it's really a fascinating read. Um, and uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm sure our listeners really benefited from your erudite comments uh, and commentary on the book and uh, look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for your questions. They were really, really well thought out and helped me a lot. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Margaret Pernau about her wonderful new book, Emotions and Modernity in Colonial India. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I also hope that you will join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, you stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.